0: So the topic for tonight is um, social and communal harmony. How many people knew that? Cool. And um, how many are here for the first time? That rocks. How do you know? (laughs) How do you know? Well, I'm glad you're here. Special welcome. Um, If you have the chance, please try to introduce yourself to someone who's in the room tonight. So social and communal harmony. This came up because I was doing some really heady Dharma study like I like to do, and I realized I wanted something really meaty, like juicy, true to life, like, you know? And what's more this than our life and conflict and harmony? or the wish for harmony. So this story. Part of why I wanted to tell this story is not only because it illustrates something, but because it has one of the coolest character names in the Buddhist canon that I've seen. So there's this. There's a time, the Buddha is staying at a place called a squirrel's sanctuary, and uh, in approaches this this uh, person of the priestly caste, and his name is Bharadvaja, which I think is his family name, Bharadvaja the Rude. <laughs> and he had heard a rumor that one of the one of the people of his uh, caste had ordained in the Buddhist discipline; he'd become a monk with the Buddha. And he comes in, and he's all angry; he's yelling at the Buddha, he's insulting him, and. Um, how does it say? With rude, harsh words. Understandable. I wonder, if some of us maybe have dealt with something similar. But the Buddha says to him, like what, what, what might you imagine in that moment is on the Buddha's drop-down menu of possible responses. It could be like the cool, I don't know, he could have like the perfect witty thing. He, I mean, he could have, I don't who know, who knows what it is. But instead, he asks he asked him a question. He says, uh, what do you think? Do you have friends? Do you have colleagues? Do you have relatives? Do they come and visit you? Do you have family that comes and visit you? And Bharad Vajja says, yeah, sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. And when they come, do you serve them? Do you serve them food, like fresh cooked food? Bharad Vajja says, yeah, yeah, I do. And the Buddha says, if they don't accept this offering from you, who does it belong to? Well, in that case, it still belongs to me. And the Buddha says, in the same way, when you abuse, you harass, and you attack us, who do not abuse, harass, and attack, we don't accept it. It still belongs to you. Those are still your insults, your harm. I don't accept it, still with you. What kind of frame of mind do you imagine would, a, would, would make that kind of a response possible? Where you're, you're literally like insulted and attacked and you're, somehow you're not provoked into, you're not drawn in, you don't toss an insult back, but it's like, no, actually these harsh words that you have given me, those, those are yours, thank you very much. so the buddha knew really well the path to peace of course cuz he lived it and he knew where it starts so we're going to we're going to start we're going we're going to start with right view as the beginning of a discussion about some of the buddha's teachings about social and communal harmony i will say that social and commun- communal harmony is a huge topic that we will not cover in 25 minutes now the buddha's teaching on this is actually pretty pretty thick Um, So I'll try to hit some of the highlights and see what comes up. I also, I feel inspired because it's such a big topic and relevant to so many, I will probably stop about halfway through and see what's going on with you so we can choose what's next for the rest of the talk. But let's start with right view because that's the essential. So how many of of you have glasses? Or contact lenses or something? Now, do you, remem- do you remember the fuzz, the fuzzy vision before you had them, and how, like how hard it was to navigate and bumping into things, tripping on things, and then you remember when you got them and you put them on for the first time. You're like, "Wow, I can see! I can see again. Maybe a better driver now." So, seeing things clearly, obviously, it changes things. And said in another way, if we have an unclear view. Despite all of our best efforts, we're going to bump into things. We're not going to be in accord and in harmony with others. Right view is the beginning. Right view is the beginning, the forerunner of harmony. And there's this beautiful metaphor about right view that it's, it's just like the dawn to the setting sun, or the, uh, the, the arisen sun. The dawn before the arisen sun, that is like right view. And then all of the wholesome qualities that follow along. So what is this? It sounds a little bit like right opinion, like I've got the, all the right views, um, which is uh which is clearly not what the Buddha meant by right view. If it were right opinion, then we would just be right back where we started. Nice. So there are there are a few different ways to talk about right view, but the one the one that I want to highlight that really is key to this. Uh, Path of Social and Communal Harmony, it has two aspects. One is basic to how uh, most or all of us live our lives all the time, and that is our actions are consequential. Our actions from the past have a role to play in what's happening now, and what we do now affects the future. Almost goes without saying, doesn't it? And then the second piece, is that we, in some measure, can discern a wholesome action from an unwholesome action, something that's helpful from unhelpful, within reason. Of course, we live in a complex world. So it's these two things. Our actions are consequential and we can discern. Interestingly enough, this is the the basic premise that allows that allows for a community to live in harmony, because it forms a basis for a community to uh, live ethically together, to align with each other. I know if my, I know this action is going to hurt or help. Maybe. So Bhikkhu Bodhi, who wrote this book about social and communal harmony, pulled together all these Buddhist teachings, he said something really interesting in there that the, the process of transformation, it doesn't occur automatically. It doesn't occur just because we want it, not by desire alone. Rather, in line with right view, we have to make some effort. And there's a very particular training, another story I want to tell you, that, uh, that's key to the social and communal harmony enterprise. And this is a teaching that the Buddha gave to his uh, seven-year-old son. So his son was named Rahula. He joined the, joined the monastic order when he was very, very young. Um, and I like, I, I, this is probably not true, but I like to believe that the Buddha saved his best teachings for, for him. Um, but he gave this very, very direct teaching on right view and living an ethical life. How Rahula could start to, f- start to discern for himself what was wholesome, what was beneficial, and what wasn't. So the Buddha again here sets it up with a question. He says, what is a, what's a mirror for? Repeated reflection, he says. Repeated reflection. Ah, yes, just so. Any any action you do with your body should be done with repeated reflection. Any action you do with your speech should be done with repeated reflection. And any action you do with your mind should be done with repeated reflection. And he takes Rahula through this whole process, actually repeats this nine times, so it's it's pretty important in the teaching. He, He says, before you do anything, before you do any action, I want you to reflect, I want you to think. Is this going to to be helpful? Is it gonna be harmful? Is this gonna lead to affliction for myself or affliction for others? And if you see that it's gonna harm, don't do it. Pretty simple, right? It's like the it's a it's an ethic that even a seven-year-old child can see and understand. But it's the basis for him developing this whole true to his own life read on how to interact in a wholesome way in the world. So in shorthand, I'm just going to call this Rahula's repeated reflection when we come back to it. It's a pretty simple tool, but it infuses our conduct with right view. That's all the theory. Now we get into the juicy stuff. I want to talk a little about anger and conflict, because I think I think when we when we go through this process, say we take up this practice of re- repeated reflection of Rahula's repeated reflection, pretty soon we're going to encounter parts of ourselves, impulses, movements to action that act- actually they. They feel like they're really going to be, I really want to do this, but it's a movement toward harm. And some of those, some of those are in the, in the category of anger, resentment. Is this familiar, familiar territory to anyone? Yeah. So there's another story where someone asks the Buddha, having slain what, does one sleep soundly? Having slain what, does one not sorrow? What is the one thing whose killing you approve? I don't know about you, that got my attention when I read it the first time. And the Buddha's response is, Having slain hostility, one sleeps soundly. Having slain hostility, one does not sorrow. The killing of hostility, with its poisoned root and its honeyed tip, This is the killing that the Noble Ones praise, for having slain that, one does not sorrow. We can first take a simple look at this um, practice of repeated reflection, something that might arise out of anger. Say without, um, to borrow an example, say without, without my knowing it, say I'm really caught up, and I slander a friend of mine. I say something hurtful about someone I care about. When, when presence of mind returns to me, if I reflect on that, I might see, ouch, ouch, this hurt me to do. I can feel it internally before anything happens. And then the friend finds out sick gut, want to disappear, I harmed this friendship and maybe the friendship ends through lack of reflection. Say this happens, at least in terms of of the dharma, we're going to make mistakes. This is going to happen. That's part of human life. There's room for this. When the Buddha was teaching Rahula about this practice of repeated reflection, he says, if after doing an action you find, oh, I I acted for someone's affliction, I harmed someone, then two things. He says, lay it open, lay it open to a good friend, a good Dharma friend. Interestingly, it does not say, confess it to the person you hurt. That's interesting to me. I don't think it's an admonition not to ever do that, but I think that requires some more discernment about whether it's wise. But he does say, lay it open. And then the second thing, he says, um, resolve on restraint in the future. Resolve on acting differently in the future. He says this, this process of laying it open and then resolving for something different, this is the basis for growth. It's not a permanent error. Something I found interesting while studying anger in the in the teachings studying hostility was that there are the, there are all these like there are a handful of different kinds of divisions. Like the, the there are discussions of causes, there are discussions of actually different kinds of people in terms of how quickly they anger and how long they stay angry. Um, all these different varieties. When I read them, what what it served uh, in my own thinking was the fact that uh, hostility or anger, it's not one thing. It's not like one fixed thing that's always the same. And for that reason, it's worth our study. It's in Dharma, it's worth our inspection and reflection to get a little closer, like see what's actually going on here. And then in the spirit of Rahula's reflection, how did I hurt? How did I do well? We get wiser about anger. I'd like to say just a little something about politics, since that's, that's uh, part, kind of like the air we breathe if we read the news. Just, to, just for a moment. I'm not gonna take a political stance, if anyone, is, if anyone is thinking. There's this other great story, the same, the same person who asked the Buddha about uh, having slain what, do you sleep soundly? So it turns out that uh, there is a, an anger eating demon that feeds on anger that this, uh, this fellow comes home and the anger-eating demon is sitting on his seat <laughs> and his whole entourage is like insulting this anger-eating demon, right? The Buddhist teachings are cool. Um, they're insulting this anger-eating demon and they're calling him names and whatever. And as they're doing that, he's getting like bigger. And it says in the text, he's getting uglier. You know, he's, getting, he's feeding on it, right? This is politics. But this um, person who seated is, his name is Sakka. Instead of of getting into the game, he just approaches. I think he kneels down and he puts his hands together in respect like this. And he announces his name. I am Sakka, ruler of the devas. He does it three times. And as he does that, the demon gets smaller smaller, smaller, and then he disappears. I will refrain from interpreting that story for you. But I don't think it takes much to see what the connection is to our our politics. What I do want to say in more, more sort of modern language about the political realm, one of the practices that I think is important is distinguishing noise from signal. Uh, there, there's a way that the, uh, the, context, the context in which we practice, there's so much happening that we're aware of that actually is more worthy than the term a good cause. There's so much happening in the world that deserves our, our care and all the effort that we can muster. We find, it, my, my theory for this moment is we find out about more of these things than we can possibly be involved in. And it's sort of a setup for discouragement, burnout. I feel sad just saying it, you know? But it's like, I think there's really something important about distinguishing noise from signal. Meaning, in a clear-eyed way, what can I have any influence on at all? What's relevant to me? And what is just like a headline with a dopamine hit and enough of a limbic hook to get me to like keep going and read about another thing? We could read, read and read. But like, read with the question, what, what really matters? Where can, I, where can I take an action? This is Rahula's reflection again. Take an action that can be of some benefit. What can I do? And sometimes, that's sitting still. That's the heart, of, the heart of our practice. And it's not separate from our social being. And there's a way that this practice of, our practice of Zazen, just sitting here being us, just senses, just senses sensing, just a being being, it undermines these impulses These impulses that want to move forward into greed and ill-will and corrosive conflict rather than wholesome conflict. These these impulses out of delusion. Just sitting here and knowing experience, it's like somehow the alchemy of that, it weakens those impulses. That can be part of our involvement. So, having talked about all the like fiery stuff, maybe just a cliffhanger, that there, there's a whole other section to talk about the, the power and the value of good friendship, the resourcefulness of good friendship, how it resources us and nourishes our path. Um, I will talk about this in the morning, two mornings from now. Uh, I'll talk about that later, but that'll be available. Um, But I think the the thing I want to highlight, I'm repeating myself a bit, is making right view real through this practice of repeated reflection. And where anger, hostility, corrosive conflict comes into our lives, it's like, it's just begging for that kind of reflection. Rahula's reflection, it's nothing like, it's nothing big, it's nothing fancy, but it is a very powerful basis for for having some criteria to start discerning in our own life, how am I helping, how am I harming? And then we're a pretty cool mechanism that we learn from experience, and you can trust that. I want to end a few minutes early because I think Tonight's more about conversation than me talking. So let's call it. Um, Thank you for your attention.